Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, New Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's exxon.com, or mobile.com, that's mobil.com, for more information. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined, as always, by my fellow staff writer at The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. So, some news for people. We are tag-teaming this podcast for good now. No more solo Lindbergh and solo Bauman or Bauman slash Ruben episodes. We are joined at the hip. We're going to be doing every episode together. Of course, we'll have guests, but we are a package deal. This is good. You're you're much more reliable than Mallory is, so I'm <laughs> happy we're doing it this way. Yes. Those of you who were subscribing solely for Mallory's Orioles updates can now safely unsubscribe. That's or- not true. <laughs> we'll still be having Mallory on from time to time, but she's very busy. So we are taking some of her work off her plate, and we are going to get to talk to each other some more. Yeah. And today we're, we're setting the record for most bends on a, a Ringer podcast. <laughs> That's true. We're going to have multiple bends on this podcast. We are talking to two guests today. So later in this episode, we're going to talk to Justin Hollander, who is the director of player personnel for the Angels. And we wanted to talk to Justin because the Keith Law article about the Diamondbacks caught our eye a, a couple of weeks ago. Everyone read this thing and one of the criticisms that Keith leveled against the Diamondbacks front office is that they didn't know the rules of baseball, which is an important thing to, to know if you're a front office. And he gave some examples of times when they just didn't know the international bonus rules. They didn't know trading rules. And that made us wonder who does know the rules and what are the rules. And so Justin has been with the Angels since 2008, and he is well-versed in contracts and CBA issues and all of the paperwork and online work that goes into baseball teams behind the scenes. So he's going to fill us in on all of that. Before we get to Justin, we're going to talk to Baseball America's Ben Badler about some of the prospect call-ups we've seen in recent days. How do you feel about September baseball? It's a completely different game when you've got the extended benches and the six-man rotations and the, the extended bullpens and stuff. But at the same time, at this point in the season, it's just one more thing that's standing between me and the playoffs. And right. there's just been so much baseball from April until this point that it's an annoyance. And I just want to get to to the playoffs. Yeah. And of course, a lot of people don't love the fact that it does become a different game for one month after five months of being the same game. And people complain about how it favors certain teams who call up lots of prospects. Of course, those teams are probably favored in other ways. They have higher payrolls. They have better players from the beginning of the season. But still, there's some imbalance. And it's not just the imbalance, but it's just the bloat on rosters. And Joe Sheehan did the math in his newsletter over the weekend. And he found that more than half of the players called up are pitchers, and I think 54% of all the players rostered in Major League Baseball, including disabled list players, are pitchers now, and September is really when managers' worst impulses when it comes to pitching changes and going through bullpens come to the fore because there is no limit. There's no need to save anyone. Of course, you still ration your best guys and you don't want to overwork them, particularly if you're a playoff team. But 
you can go as deep as you want. It's just relief pitchers all the way down. And most importantly, it means the end of position player pitching for the season, <laughs> pretty much. I know I set up my my MLB.tv game changer uh, yes. the other day and put position player pitching on the list of things that I care about. And as did I, I just realized how futile that was. I think that was number one. And I'm just yeah. it, it's I'm never going to use it. So. Why even watch baseball yeah, at, at this know. point if that's not even an option? So we're going to talk about some of the actual interesting players who were called up, not just the 33rd man on the 40-man roster who is going to get into a blowout game in a mop-up role, but we're going to talk to Ben about some of the blue-chip prospects, some of the top-ranked guys, some of whom are on playoff teams. So we are going to bring on Ben now, and, and Ben is the national writer for Baseball America. He is an expert in international prospects particularly, but well-versed in all prospects, Ben, thanks for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So I know that you've written a lot about Cuban players. You've written about Johan Mancada for years now. You've written about Rusne Castillo. And those are two guys who maybe get grouped together occasionally, not because of the results, but because they're both players that the Red Sox paid a lot of money for in a span of less than a year. And one has panned out about as well as anyone could have expected thus far, and the other has not, to put it kindly. So how does one team arrive at two big dollar deals for two players from the same country and get one seemingly so right and one at least so far so wrong? Uh, yeah, it's it's a good question because the Red Sox, they have kind of an interesting way in terms of how they divide up their Cuban coverage. And I think a lot of teams kind of wrestle back and forth with how they organize their Cuban coverage because there's players coming out who are as young as 15 and 16 years old. And then you have other players coming out who are, you know, in their mid to late 20s, guys who are already in their 30s as well. And if you're an international scout, typically your job is to evaluate kids who are 15, 16, 17 years old, nowadays even 14 years old. And when you're used to seeing that many players who are, you know, 15, 16 year old kids, your eyeballs sort of get accustomed to, to evaluating and, and projecting players at, at that age. Whereas, so if you go in and, and you see somebody who's, you know, 27, 28 years old, it, it can be uh, a little bit jarring to, uh, to see those guys sometimes and, and try to gauge them and engage their ability. So what, some teams do, including the Red Sox, is they they divide up their coverage, and so they actually have their their pro scouting staff and, and a lot of guys in their uh, on the pro side who evaluate the older Cuban players for them, and then a lot of guys who typically handle their their international amateur coverage, the, the you know the traditional signings out of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela. Uh, a lot of those guys handle the the younger Cuban signings, but uh, so they actually divide it up a, a little bit differently in terms of how they, they evaluate younger Cuban players like Moncada uh, compared to somebody who, who's older like uh, Rusne Castillo. But I think it's just uh, in, in general you're going to find in, in any market you're going to have teams hit big on you know some major league free agents and they're going to sign other major league free agents who are going to be a, a complete disaster that they might end up regretting almost immediately. And, and you might, uh, whether it's through the trade market, you have some teams that – you know, or general managers who make brilliant trades, and and then <laughs> the same year they make disaster trades. So uh, I think 
part of it is, you know, maybe the, just the way the Red Sox divide up their coverage, there is a, a difference there. But uh, I think a big part of it is just that, you know, every team do, can make mistakes in <laughs> in one area and, and also also make some excellent moves in, in that same area. So that's interesting. So the international crew can plausibly say, we didn't do it. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> us. And they can point the finger at a, a different department in the Red Sox. That's nice for them. So to Mankata spe- uh, specifically, how much of a distinction, if any, do you make between someone like him who comes up in September versus somebody like Dansby Swanson, who's you know, sort of a similar uh, developmentally, but came up in August? You know, is there something to that September 1st line in the way that you sort of view these call ups? No, I guess at this point, I mean, the rosters expand. So that's just why you have more room for somebody like Moncada. I mean, if it was, you know, I, I think the reason the Red Sox are bringing up Moncada is because they have the extra 40 man spaces, for example. Whereas, you know, if, if, if we didn't, if Major League Baseball and, and who knows if this is going to change, but if they said, you know what, well, we're not going to do this 40 man <laughs> roster call up and then expand the rosters to, to 40 guys in September anymore. Uh, if, if the Red Sox only had room to carry 25 guys, I'm not sure that they would have brought up Moncada, but they have that option uh, to bring him up. So I think that's a, a big part of why he is up in, in the first place, whereas the Braves decided, you know, we we want Dansby Swanson up now in, in August, regardless of, you know, whether he's already on the 40-man roster or service time for, for the future be damned. But overall, I don't think it makes that much of a difference to a lot of teams these days in terms of whether a guy uh, is, is a true September call-up uh, or not, or, or if you're bringing him up in, you know, in August, like you said. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether you think there's been any real difference in the last couple seasons about the way teams treat prospects and how they manipulate or choose not to manipulate service time, because 2015 was this historic season for prospects when teams were calling up, you know, half the top 100 list, it seemed like almost from the very start of the season, and it seemed like maybe there was less attention being paid to service time since there was so much parity and teams needed to win every game. I don't know whether that's held true to the same extent this season, but do you think things have changed in the last year or two, or do you not really see so much of a difference? I think it probably depends on the organization and and where the organization is at that time. Part of it is I mean, you're seeing guys who are just kind of forcing their way to the major leagues very quickly out of the draft, especially polished high school players like an Andrew Benintendi or, or an Alex Bregman. But I, I think you're, you still do see a lot of service time manipulation. Obviously, that's not, uh, you know, the Braves are not <laughs> manipulating Dansby Swanson's service time by any means. This is a guy who was in double A and was not exactly tearing it up in double A. He's a great prospect, one of the the best prospects in the game, but uh, certainly was not dominating double A and certainly not to the point where you, you would see, all right, well, this guy has to skip triple A and, and needs to be in the major leagues right now. This is a guy who, you know, I think they probably could have just kept in double A the rest of the season, uh, brought him to triple A next year to start. And, you know, if he really forced the issue, then bring him up uh, at some point in 2017 so you know certainly the Braves are are not a team that's done that I think it's probably to their detriment they're going to end up losing Dansby Swanson to to free agency a a year earlier 
than they had to. But uh, you know, overall, I think it mostly just depends on on the team and and the circumstance that they're under. So, give us the scouting report on Mankata, who was Baseball America's top prospect before he was called up, and unlike some of these guys, he's coming up right in the heart of a pennant race. So. What's the short-term outlook and what's the peak outlook? Yeah, short-term, it's it's hard to say. You know, it's hard to predict what exactly is going to happen over a month just because so much can happen. But, uh, yeah, like you said, he, he is the best prospect in baseball. I think he's a better prospect long-term than Andrew Benintendi. But I, I don't think he's quite as polished right now as Benintendi is, especially, you know, at the plate, I think Benintendi has better back control, better pitch recognition right now. Uh, he's just a more advanced, pure hitter than Moncada. But I think long term, you know, we're going to look back in 10 years, and I think Moncada is going to end up being the better player just because he he does so many things that grade out so well. Uh, he's just a dynamic, explosive athlete who is extremely physical. You don't see many guys in baseball who have the kind of build and the kind of quick twitch athleticism that Moncada has in, in just about everything he does. Uh, the tools all, for the most part, grade out at, you know, at least above average, if not well above average. Uh, tremendous bat speed. Probably, a, if you're conservative, a 60 arm, it's probably a 70 arm. Uh, when he really airs it out on the on the 2080 scale, uh, he's a plus plus runner too. Gives you a lot of value on the base pass. He did have an ankle injury last month, and I think that has slowed him down in terms of stealing bases. Recently, I uh, watched him play a couple of weeks ago, and he was hobbling around a little bit when he slid into second base to try to break up a double play. But uh, offensively, this guy is you know bat speed is is different than what you see from. The overwhelming majority of players, uh, a switch hitter who's more compact uh, with his swing from the left side. I think just hitting right-handed, he just hasn't seen that many left-handed pitchers to to be able to get that many reps right-handed uh, in his career. But uh, you know, he's got a guy who who understands the strike zone too. Uh, he's not up there. He's an aggressive hitter, uh, and and the pitch recognition does need to to improve. I think that will improve just as he sees more and more off-speed pitches but that is something that separates you know a guy like Benintendi for example from Moncada and you can see that in the the swing and miss rate and then you know the power that he has is is impressive I think this is a guy who has a chance to hit you know 20-25 plus you know potentially 30 home runs down the road even though you're not seeing it in the the numbers right now I think once some of the the swing adjustments that he's trying to make take place uh, you're going to see a guy who uh, is able to hit and, and get on base at a high clip and, and hit for a lot of power, too. And with, uh, you know, he's been a second baseman most of the way up the minors, but obviously Dustin Pedroia's presence makes that a tough place to break in for the Red Sox. I imagine you envision him as a third baseman. You think he'll be just fine over there? Yeah, he's he's the kind of guy who, other than shortstop, he doesn't have the, I don't think he has the natural actions to to play shortstop. Other than that, he could play really anywhere on the field, including center field. I mean, he has the certainly the speed and, and the arm strength to to play center field, even if you wanted to put him out there. But yeah, third base, I mean, this is a position that he did play in Cuba coming up through the junior leagues. And you just look at his, you know, the quick first step, the reactions that he has, uh, his, his hands are good for the position. He certainly has plenty of arm strength for that spot. Uh, I think he's 
you know, I, I, there's a lot of things, both when he was at second base and, and now, at, you know, his brief time back at third base where you look at his pre-pitch setup or, or his focus for for every pitch maybe wasn't always there. He'd miss some routine plays or, or make some some bad decisions on on balls that you you see from a lot of young infielders usually at, at shortstop because that's where you the guys who are as athletic as Moncada tend to be. But Moncada is uh, is a guy who I think has a chance to develop into an above average defensive third baseman just when you look at the the athleticism, the quick first step, the arm strength, all the tools that he has. He's not there right now. But I think long term, you're going to see this guy develop, assuming he stays at third base. He, again, he has the versatility to to move around the, the diamond and, and play pretty much anywhere. But I think long term, you're going to see him develop into an above average defender at that position. And to stick with players who are or have been rated the number one prospect in baseball, Byron Buxton is a September call up for the second straight year. I think I lost track already. I think this is his fifth major league call up. He's obviously been up and down quite a bit. He's struggled at the major league level. Are you of the opinion that the twins have mishandled him or is this just a case of a player's development not proceeding the way that everyone envisioned? And have you seen or heard anything about him recently that suggests that maybe he's finally finding his stride? I mean, I think the biggest thing about Buxton is that he's still 22 years old. I mean, if you just look at the guys who were drafted out of college last year, those are the guys who are 22 years old, too. And yeah, I mean, we have a Benintendi and Bregman and Swanson are, are in the major leagues, but most of those guys are, you know, or a lot of those guys are still in, in high A or, or even in double A. Buxton just happens to have already reached the major leagues and kind of forced his way to the major leagues. And I think it's just important to keep in mind, you know, his both his age and the relatively little experience that this guy has in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I think he's played something like 60 games in double A and, and about 62 games, I think, in triple A, which is, is not that long of a time to spend in either double A or triple A. Uh, so when you take that into account, you take into account his age, and then you look at all the tools that he has. I mean, if you watch him play defense, I don't think there's any question about the way he plays center field. He's, you know, assuming he hits enough to actually play every day, this guy could be a, a gold glove center fielder. But I think it's just going to take some patience with him. You look at what he's done in in AAA when when they sent him back to AAA this year. He was, you know, he was great in AAA. The, the swing and miss was a little bit higher than you'd like to see. I mean, the the big thing for him, he's he's going to have to stop chasing pitches out of the strike zone, uh, which, you know, wasn't really a problem for him earlier in his career. A part of that could just be the way he's been, you know, pushed very aggressively. But I think if you look at the, the minor league track record, some of that is, you know, the, the fast promotions have been, you know, merited by the performance that he's that he had in throughout the minor league. So I'm still extremely high on on Byron Buxton. I don't know if things are all going to click for him next year, but I, I think at some point down the road uh, they will. And I think he's going to be one of the better players in the game. His stock has fallen, uh, but I don't think it's fallen quite as much as a lot of people who have just seen him struggle in the major leagues think. I mean, I think back to, you know, a guy like Jackie Bradley Jr., for example, with the Red Sox. And, you know, when you look back to how bad he was in his first full year with the Red Sox, and it's not like the Red Sox uh, jerked him around or anything. They just let him go out there and play, and 
he was really bad for for a while at first when the Red Sox did that. But this was a guy who always hit at, at every level that he was at, both in, in college and, and throughout the minor leagues, all the way up through the, the highest levels of the minor leagues and just needed you know, more time to, to adapt and, and make that adjustment to major league pitching. And, you know, Buxton is, is a, a way, I mean, he, he's, he's an even better athlete than, than Bradley. He's got better, pure tools than, than Bradley. And, and if you look at his, his minor league track record, he's another guy who's, who's hit all the way up through the minor leagues. And I think that at some point it's, it's going to click for him and he will, I think, make that adjustment to, to be able to translate it against major league pitching. So let's shift gears a little bit and go for another center fielder, uh, Rymel Tapia of the Colorado Rockies. My biggest question is how on earth did his weird two strike crouch not get ironed out at some point in the minor leagues? Like it just seems like something that's, it's going to change his eye level, uh, unnecessarily and just be another thing to, to worry about. What does that do for him and, and why haven't the Rockies made him stop? Yeah, that's a good question. He's uh, certainly, it's an unconventional approach that he has. And I think a lot of teams vary in terms of how how hands-on they are in terms of taking something away from a player, uh, especially when they're having so much success. And it's, you know, Tappy is certainly an unorthodox uh, swing, an unorthodox style, especially when he gets to two strikes and, and goes into that crouch. But it's kind of always... It's always worked for him, and I think some organizations just say, "Look, if a guy does something unusual, but he's having success with it, and and he's had success with it all the way up through Triple A now, uh, it's just not worth messing with and and trying to." take a guy out of what's been working for him and he's sort of fits an archetype you know when you think of the of the rockies you think of the you know the the big power in course field but they've tended to go for you know smaller faster uh center fielders at times you know like Juan Pierre or willie Tavares to to cover all that ground in center field is he that kind of player or is you know is there more power is he not that good a defender you know where does he sort of fit in with that yeah, he's just such a he's just such an unconventional player. He doesn't really fit into any traditional boxes because uh, if you look at him, I mean, the biggest strength for him is he just has great hitter's hands and, and great hand-eye coordination. It's a guy who just has excellent back control with with a, a really innate ability to just to put the barrel to the ball. He's not going to have much swing and miss in his game. Question is, you know, how much. Well, you know, how much power is he going to have? He, I think power is something that typically comes later on in a player's career. But with Tapia specifically, I'm not really sure that he's built for that power to come. It might, but he's kind of more of a, a narrow frame type build. So it, it really you have to squint to see that, that power projection coming forward. I think he's always going to be a guy who relies more on, on putting the bats of the ball, hitting line drives, using the whole field. And you know, the thing I, I wish he did more was was draw walks because I, I, I'm not sure that the, the power is going to come. Uh, I think his strengths are going to be to, you know, to put the ball in play and to, to try to, to work the count and, and work walks and get on base. But that's, I think that's something that, that could improve for him. But it's, it's something, it's part of it that makes him so, such a tricky player to, to try to peg it because this, and the speed too is, it's not like he's a, you know, a 70, you know, to a, to an 80 top of the scale kind of runner. Uh, he runs well, but he's, he's not a, 
a real burner. So there's, you know, some scouts that wonder whether he's even, you know, going to play center field. Is is he better fit on a corner? But then that's where the question of, you know, the the power and and the the, the walks come into play with the higher offensive demand. Uh, if he if he does move to the corner, so I do like him. I, I think he is a uh, a good player. I don't uh, I don't know that he's going to be a superstar, but uh, I do like him. I think he's going to be a, a good player, but certainly uh, an unorthodox kind of guy. One more, not exactly about Tavia, just something I uh, that I wonder about with minor leaguers. He's attempted almost 200 stolen bases in the minor leagues and come out at I think like a 62, 63 percent success rate, which is uh, so far below the the break even point that you'd never see something like that in the major leagues. And I get the sense is that isn't that uncommon to have high volume base stealers in the minors at a very low success rate, sort of like a, a latter day Kobe Bryant. Uh, field goal percentage approach to to stealing bases and is this something that's born out in your experience and if so why yeah i think it just uh just depends on the player i mean in, in tapia's case i just think he's he's not he, he needs to learn how to read pitchers better and, and get better jumps off of first base because he's you know in terms of the the base stealing ability uh it's something that's that needs to improve for him but yeah for a lot of guys who you know, whether they're, you know, really top of the scale type runners or, or even if they're even just a little bit above average runners, you, you do see them steal a lot and, and get caught a lot just because, you know, that's what the minor leagues are for. If, you know, if a guy's not good at stealing bases, it's not that big a deal if he gets, you know, thrown out a, a bunch of times in, in low A or, or in double A where you don't really care who wins and, and loses the game. You want a guy to to get experience and and the only way to become a, a better base dealer is to to practice it and and to to do it in games and and sometimes you learn or a lot of times you learn by making mistakes you know if you steal 30 bases but you get caught 20 times that's you know a lot of learning experiences for you you can go back to the dugout talk with a manager talk with one of your coaches in there about go back to the video go back to you know, to have that discussion about what you could have done to to get uh, a better jump, whether you should have gone on on that pitch or not. So that's the, that's what the minor leagues are for to to develop these guys. So yeah, definitely in the minor leagues, if a guy gets thrown out more than you know thirty thirty five percent of the time, it's it's not what you want to see. But sometimes it's just you know you want to develop these guys to to get better, so they're not making the same mistakes when when they do get to the major leagues. And just to wrap up with a couple pitchers, we saw the latest member of the Dodgers revolving door rotation debut on Sunday, Jose de Leon, one of the team's top prospects. He acquitted himself well. He struck out nine, walked none over six innings against San Diego. So what should we expect to see from him for the rest of the season and, and over the long run? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they called him up. It's not a guy with uh, an overpowering fastball. And in fact, it's the, the pure velocity has been a, a little bit down for him this year compared to where it was last year. But he's got that sneaky late life on his fastball where it seems to have that late hop, whether it's from uh, whether it's from the spin on the fastball or, or the extension that he gets. But you do see some more swing and miss than you, you might expect traditionally from, from somebody with that kind of velocity. Uh, and then he has an excellent changeup too. It's It's got great separation off his fastball. He, he sells it well with his arm speed. You, you could see he was really going to it a lot uh, in his last start. He's probably going to have to mix in uh, some of the breaking stuff a little bit more as he goes uh, through the league a, a little bit more and, and goes on through 
uh, the rest of the season. But this is a guy who's got a, a really good, you know, fastball changeup combination and, and throws a lot of strikes too. So uh, I think he has a chance to be a mid rotation starter. Maybe you know if some of that fastball velocity comes back, maybe a a number two starter. But certainly, uh, I think there's a good chance that this guy can develop into uh, at least a, a number three for them. And uh, over in Texas, uh, the Rangers just called up Johander Mendez. And there are sort of two questions floating around about the Rangers with regard to pitching right now. One is their bullpen has a lot of good individual arms. It seems like at any point, it's not sure how trustworthy any of them is. And the other problem is long term, which is what happens to that rotation uh, as Cole Hamels gets older and um, as you Darvish gets closer to free agency. So what do you think about Mendez's ability to fill in each of those problems, either in the rotation long term or in the uh, in the bullpen short term. I think the the biggest, I, I like Mendez, and he certainly has increased his stock quite a bit this year going, you know, basically going up three, four levels now. And the fastball velocity increased a little bit too this year. I think that's helped him out. But I think the biggest question mark on him is you know, going back to when he signed, when he was, you know, 6'3", 160, maybe 160, just really tall, really frail I think he was throwing like up to 87 miles an hour that spring and then by the time he actually signed on July 2nd he was maybe 85 to 89 where you're really banking on the projection and, and that actually has come around and he's touching I think 95 now but he's he's always had trouble staying healthy even right after he signed uh, he, I think he had an elbow strain so he didn't even go to instructs it's just been a, a constant battle for him to stay healthy and we're talking about a guy who signed five years ago, and he's thrown, I believe, about 110, 111 innings this year, which is a career high for him. So, you know, a big part of being a starter is being able to handle uh, a starter's workload. And with Mendez, I mean, I, I really like the the delivery, the arm action. That all points to, to somebody who should be durable, but uh, just based on the track record of, of medical problems that he's had uh, with his arm and the, the lack of being able to handle a, a large, you know, larger workload than uh, 100 innings up until this year, those are pretty big concerns. It doesn't mean he, he can't do it, but there's certainly red flags to be able to pencil a guy into a, a rotation next year to be able to handle, you know, 180 innings. Uh, in the in the rotation next year, so I think it's going to be interesting to see the way that the Rangers manage his workload next year because he he has stayed healthy this year and he has been extremely effective for uh, and, and a guy whose stock has has been up uh, with a, you know a really good fastball changeup combination. And this is about the the Rangers in in general. Probably the hallmark of of Texas over the past five years or so has been how well they've scouted in Latin America and how deep they've been able to get that farm system to where they can trade for coal. Hamels and the next year trade for Jonathan Lucroy without uh, giving up Profar or Mazzara or Joey Gallo or even Rugnet Odor, who came up a little bit faster than uh, was perhaps expected. And so now we're seeing Mendez coming up. Behind him, there's uh, Leody Tavares, the, the outfielder uh, who turns 18 uh, this week. Is this the end? Like, is this finally the, the end of that well, or they're going to have some sort of dry spell, or is there more coming down the pipe? There, there is still more there, but it's definitely thinned out and it's you know it's it's not any fault of the rangers for not having depth in the farm system left over when you're making these 
trades for, for you know for guys like Cole Hamels and, and Jonathan Lucroy and all the deals that that they've made uh, over the years, even trading away you know guys like Marco Stiplon to uh, to the Brewers. You know, there, there's been so many trades that they've made to help bolster the major league team, and you know they've they've traded guys for for the right reasons. So uh, certainly their their farm system has thinned out. I don't think they're going to be. Uh, they're certainly not going to be one of the top 10 farm systems or anything like that when we rank the, the top farm systems uh, heading into next season. But there there still is talent there. I mean, Leody Tavares is a, is a really exciting guy. I, I really like him quite a bit. Guy who saw him play before he signs. A guy who's extremely good combination of athleticism, tools, and and polish relative, obviously, for, for his age. I wouldn't necessarily call any 17 year old uh, a polished player given how far away he still is but for his age uh, he does a lot of things well at the plate really nice clean swing from from both sides of the plates speed strong arm premium position so uh, there's still some there's still some talent there but it's they're they're definitely in a swing right now where uh, they're they're not as strong in the farm system as they uh, as they have been in in recent years and there's sort of a an easy story to tell about that well in the Dominican starting to dry up for them happening about the same time as they lost AJ Preller to San Diego. It's that obviously it's not that easy, but you know, how much of the story does that tell? I think AJ did a, a lot of great things for Rangers international department. There's no question about it. When you look at the amount of talent that they were able to bring in and, and, you know, before he was there compared to when he did get there and, and took over as international scouting director and eventually moved up so you know losing him uh is certainly doesn't help at all uh but you, know, you look at the people who took over after him mike daly was their international director uh, after aj got promoted obviously aj was was still very involved in the international scouting process even while mike daly was the international director but you know mike daly was the the international director who signed Ronald Guzman, Omar Mazzara, uh, Rugnet Odor, a lot of these guys who are you know, some of their, their best international talent. And then Gil Kim uh, took over for Mike Daly when Mike Daly became the, the farm director. Gil Kim, I thought, did a, a very good job for them. Uh, they, you know, they signed Andy Banez out of Cuba. Was, I thought it was a very uh, opportunistic signing for them. He was the also the, the international director when they did sign uh, Leody Tavares. So uh, he actually just left about a, a little less than a year ago to become the farm director for the Blue Jays. And, and Rafiq Saab is there now and, and their international director. So, you know, we'll see how well they continue to do. But a, a lot of the, the scouts on the ground are still there. I really like what the Rangers did this year. Internationally, they signed David Garcia, a 16-year-old catcher out of Venezuela, for you know a very reasonable bonus for a guy who we ranked as the the top catcher on the international market the one of the top 10 uh international prospects for for all of july 2nd just talking to a lot of scouts about him it was pretty consistent strong feedback on him a guy who projects to stick behind the plate and a switch hitter uh, who's you know with a good, good swing from both sides performs well in games so i think there's losing you know Guys like you know Gil Kim to to the Blue Jays and and, and AJ Preller, obviously to the Padres. Uh, it shows certainly that other teams value the the international scouting personnel 
that they have. And, uh, you know, I think all those guys could, could eventually go on to become general managers one day. It wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, it would surprise me if, uh, if they weren't <laughs> general managers. But uh, a lot of the, the systems and, and the people are, are still in place who are working on the ground uh, every day there in, in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, uh, Colombia, Panama, Curacao, all these other countries. So I think it'll probably still continue to be uh, an area where they're going to be uh, strong in, uh, in the international market. All right, so we have talked about the blue chippers that people can expect to see this month. We will let you go. You can find Ben's writing at Baseball America. You can hear him sometimes on the Baseball America podcast, and you can find him on Twitter at Ben Badler. Ben, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. All right, before we talk to the Angels' Justin Hollander, let's pause for some quick words from our sponsors, starting with Indochino. Every man looks better in a suit. I say that mostly as a man who admires other men's suits while podcasting in his pajamas. But that doesn't make it any less true, and a made-to-measure suit fits your body much better than a generic off-the-rack suit. You want that painted-on Daniel Craig look? How does he get into that thing? You've got to go made-to-measure. And Indochino is one of the largest made-to-measure menswear brands. They're making it easy for men to get great fit Fitting, high-quality suits, and shirts at an incredible price. You can visit Indochino.com or drop by one of their nine North American showrooms. Pick from hundreds of fabrics and patterns. Choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. Submit your body measurements. Resist the urge to exaggerate the good parts and shrink the bad parts. And then kick back, relax, and get ready to step into the best, most stylish suit you have ever worn in just four weeks. This week, our listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $389 at Indochino.com when entering MLB at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping is free, and your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back. I've always wanted to say those words. That's Indochino.com, promo code MLB for any premium suit for just $389 in free shipping. You'll never have to worry about a badly fitting suit or expensive trips to the tailor again. Indochino, get ready to look like a million bucks. And I also want to reintroduce you to New Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as their F1 fuels, New Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients, each with their own unique functions to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever, including dual detergents to help clean your engine and corrosion inhibitor designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. So refuel with New Synergy Gasoline today. Only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's exxon.com, or mobile.com, that's mobil.com, for more information. All right, back to baseball. And to take us through all the work that has to be done in front offices to make the moves we see possible, we are bringing in Justin Hollander. He is the Angels' former director of baseball operations and current director of player personnel. He's been with the Angels since 2008. Justin, hello. Hello, Ben. How are you? Very well, thanks. So before we get into all the minutia and the rules, I wanted to ask you one question just because you are a product of the Tony Regan's administration and you've been there now through a, a couple of GM changes and a lot of the other front office people who are with the Angels now were hired later. And I'm wondering whether there is some benefit to having a kind of institutional memory. You know, I'm sure that 
you've been kept on because you're the best person for the job. But is there an additional benefit to having someone around who can say, oh, you know, we tried that in 2010 and ownership said no, or this is how you fill out the expense reports, or I know the password to that account because I've been here for several years. Is there some benefit to that instead of just sort of sweeping away the previous regime and installing all new people? Yeah, I think so. I think it, you know, it can work both ways if, you know, not referring to me specifically, but generally speaking, if you are sort of taking on somebody who comes with the furniture or somebody else is already there and they're not open-minded and they only view the way they've always done things as the way to do it in the future, then it can be a hindrance. But if the people who are already there are both open-minded and knowledgeable about bargaining history and the way things have done in the past and you know this is the time of year that budgets are due and this is how to get expenses through that you know may not ordinarily get through or this is the best way to talk to the owner if you know there's a a potential issue coming forward early notice is better or just tell them when you absolutely need to like those things all vary from place to place Um, and I think that institutional knowledge is generally a good thing so yeah I think it can be very helpful and when a new regime comes in how do they typically decide okay this is who we're keeping because you know there's I'm sure always an impulse to bring your own friends and colleagues in and people you know and you've worked with before So how do you decide, okay, well, we're going to keep this person and that person? Are there interviews of everyone? Is it just based on things you've heard from people in the game? I I can only obviously speak to my experience. When Tony left and Jerry came in about a month later, there were really only a couple people left. Everybody else had already been let go. Uh Um, And I don't know that I had a necessarily a formal interview with Jerry about, you know, whether there was a role for me and this is what he was thinking. I, I do distinctly remember about a week into his tenureship, we went on a long, what turned into a long lunch, like about a three-hour lunch. And by the end of it, he offered me the job that I had through last season, the director of baseball operations job. And he'd made some phone calls and talked to some people about from around the industry that knew me, what the skill set, where does it fit, do you think, things like that. And when Billy came in last year, I had known Billy a little bit through industry meetings and things like that. So again, there wasn't a formal interview process, but I think in general, when people get these jobs, they have a very clear idea of how they want to set up their office, and you can't always access all the people that you want to. And I think as a general rule, people aren't so cold-blooded that, you know, I had in mind this person, and, uh, you know, there's already a person here, so I'm just going to fire that person (laughs) and their career and bring in a new person. Like, generally, I think people try and work with what is available to them and then accent those people with additional people or people that they can bring in to help you know, install their systems and programs that are familiar with them. I think that's generally the way it works. You very rarely ever see a GM come in and like fire all the baseball operations assistants. Uh, so to get to our actual topic, how does it generally work with teams? There's a rules expert who's kind of the, the consensus authority on these matters in the front office. Is it always one person who's the designated go-to for those things? Is it a sharing of resources? How does that work? with the Angels or, to your knowledge, with other teams? I'd say with most most places, it's a sharing. Typically, there's an assistant GM that is sort of the main go-to and the most experienced voice in terms of rules administration, collective bargaining issues, roster management, arbitration, zero to three contracts, all the sort of general administrative, baseball administrative functions. And then there's people underneath them that either are solely dedicated to that or help to make sure that their things aren't missing. Typically, there's an assistant GM, 
a director of baseball operations and then maybe one other baseball ops assistant that are all either solely focused or significantly focused on making sure that we don't do anything to sink the organization. You know, we don't want to accidentally lose Mike Trout, um, <laughs> something like that. So that that's generally the way it works. It's always been the way it works since I've been with the Angels, but it's never just been on one person's plate that if, if they forget to do something or they're not available, that no one else is capable of fulfilling those duties because that's just, it would be a terrible process if that were the case. I'll ask a, a similar question in a little more pointed manner. Like this came up because of Keith Law's story about the Diamondbacks and their fiasco with Yoan Lopez and not spending to the to the draft pool. And without asking you to speculate about other teams, you know, how does that? How do you make sure that something like that doesn't happen? And particularly if you were spreading that that responsibility around through a couple different people, how do you make sure that nothing falls through the cracks? You know, I think it's it's always checks and balances, and obviously I have no idea what anybody else's situation is, so I don't even want to begin to speculate. Sure. In terms of the, you know, Angel's general process, when we walk into the draft room, for instance, and we know we have however much money to spend in the MLB pool, like there are multiple people with spreadsheets that have been checked and double-checked to make sure that as we go through the process that we know exactly how much we spent, exactly how much we have left, here are five different scenarios for the next five picks that we can run through to see if it all the money works. And we're constantly looking at all that, not only on draft day, but every day afterwards, we're sending a sheet around to each other. People are checking and double checking it just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Because obviously in a situation like that, going over is such a substantial consequence losing a first round pick the next year that you, you just can't put it on one person's shoulders to say, you just keep track and let us know when we're getting close. Like, so many people have to be in the loop and aware so that we're all on the same page. We're all thinking together. I think communication is a huge part of sort of draft pool administration, international dollar administration. Uh, if you're a team that is worried about the luxury tax, the competitive balance tax calculations, like multiple people are looking at that and thinking about it and trying to manage all of that information to make sure that everyone is aware and on the same page of where you stand at every moment. So losing a pick then would be the nightmare scenario, the thing that you kind of wake up in a cold sweat. You know, for me and Michael, it might be we have an article due or something and we didn't start it yet. Or, you know, we our deadline is passed and we don't have a topic, something really low stakes like that. But That's never happened to me before. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's happened to me either, but in my dreams it happens constantly. So would that be the scenario that would be the absolute worst case for the MLB rules expert? or Yeah, I think if it were losing a pick or losing a player, um, you know, Major League Baseball has put in a lot of protections in place to make sure that you don't actually accidentally lose players, either by failing to properly tender them or, for instance, if you're if you're going to put someone on outright waivers, it's a bit like the, the Major League Baseball Central database is a bit like what you would see in like a Yahoo Fantasy Baseball page. Uh-huh. Um, so you select a player and then you, that you want to put on outright waivers and then you click that player's name and then a, like a little pop-up will pop up. Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> um, so it's it giving you a warning. And I actually called, we were joking around a little bit about it, a couple of years ago. Like what would happen if we accidentally put Mike Trout or, or Albert Pujols <laughs> or Cole Calhoun on outright waivers? Like would somebody just call us and say, are you sure you really want to do this? So we actually called Matt and they said on that one, yeah, we'd probably call and make sure that you really wanted to do that um, as opposed to somebody didn't break in or somebody wasn't messing around and didn't realize what they were doing. So the league office provides a lot of protection, both in the way the database is built and in the number of memos and just double checks 
to make sure that you're not doing something to sink your own franchise. So in the in the NHL, I know there's it's customary for a front office to have a like a cap guru and somebody who whose job it is to you know tally up all the contracts. Are we under the salary cap? And in a league without a a salary cap, obviously we've talked about waiver rules. We've talked about uh, draft bonus caps, international free agent caps. Obviously, each team has its own internal budget. What else are you guys sort of looking at, you know, making sure you're not running a foul up? You know, we have our own internal budgets, which range from everything to, like, how much the baseball costs to staff salaries to the Gatorade at the minor league level, like, everything you can think of. Like, somebody has to keep track of all of that and make sure that you're on budget in every different department. There's other, you know, office tasks. You know, expense reports for the scouts, um, both on the pro and the amateur side, the international side, employee contracts. And it's, it's like a regular business in many, many ways that people don't think about. This is the time of year where teams are typically going through their budgeting process. And like every other job, people who run departments got to go sit in with the team president or the VP of finance and go through. And I don't know if it's line by line or item by item, but it's certainly budget center by budget center and sort of explain any variances from the last year. Project forward, what do you need next year? Explain any additions you want to make. You know, it's exactly what you think it would be going through the budgeting process. <laughs> it's just that there's one budget that, you know, depending on your club, runs anywhere between 60 to 80 million to 250 million. And that, that one sort of tends to trump what everybody else thinks or the, all the other jobs, but all those other budget centers help the one big one go. So in many ways, it's just like a regular job if you're running the budget. That's the sort of follow up I wanted to ask. Like, you know, everybody sort of has this glamorous, well, I don't know if glamorous is the right word, but this, you know, somewhat romanticized idea of working in baseball that it's about wearing cool sunglasses and leaning up against the batting cage and stuff like that. But like, for all intents and purposes, you're a part of, you know, you're like a, a headhunter or a, you know, somebody in a, a hiring department. And how much of your job is just making sure that the numbers line up or talking to people on the phone or things that wouldn't look out of place in a any white collar job in the country now much of that is not on my plate as i shifted over into more player personnel mm -hmm. uh, sort of general career areas but previous to that when i was director of baseball ops is probably 50 percent of your time is just on pure budgets and baseball administration, making sure the paperwork is right. It's sort of the, the monotonous task of making sure that the, the departments are all running smoothly. And then 50% is, you know, maybe 40% is, is thinking about cool trades and working on research projects. And then 10% is leaning on the cage with your sunglasses on and, you know, hoping that you look cool and spending time hanging out downstairs and things like that. But for the most part, your job is upstairs, it's in the office, it's making sure the departments run smoothly. You know, I think that uh, one of my former bosses, Matt Clentax, described that job, the director of baseball ops job, is you are holding the ladder. You are at the bottom. <laughs> and things are falling, catch them all. Make sure nothing falls. Um, and that's really what it is like when you're the rules guy in the office or when you're the administrative person in the office. It's just making sure that everyone else is in a position to do their job. Be it the pro scouts, the amateur scouts, like everybody in the field and in the office. Speaking of cool sunglasses, I was an intern in New York when Billy Epler and current Angels assistant GM Steve Martone worked there. And I can say from experience that those guys wear cool sunglasses. <laughs> Someone in the office posted pictures of them wearing sunglasses at the 2009 ticker tape parade and wrote Hollywood Epler and Hollywood Martone. And now they work an hour away from Hollywood. So the nicknames fit. So 
Do you have any close calls in your past? Were there any scary moments where you thought you missed something and you were going to lose something or something was going to be way over budget or anything, whether or not it actually turned out to be true? You know, not any close calls that I can think of in terms of like, oh, my God, we, we almost oops. I think in the, the, the landscape today of baseball, the biggest thing you want to make sure is that your roster is flexible, that you're not landlocked. So making sure you have optional waivers requested on players that are coming to the big leagues that require optional waivers so that if you have the 15-inning game or if your starter gets bombed, and you need to send out a player who has options, you can actually do that because you don't have to go in the manager's office and say, sorry, you have to wear it for another day because we don't have optional waivers that are required on this player, so we just have to keep the roster intact for a day. Things like that are probably more common than the, the oops, we dropped the ball on the, the draft pick signing pool, or we didn't realize that we had an international spending pool, so we went over and you know now we have to pay 100% tax. Like that's I, I don't know if that ever happens. I, you know, I, I don't know how often. I, I really can't imagine. So I don't can't remember any close calls. You know, going through the Albert Pujols signing um, and sort of all of the intricacies that that required. Uh, I would say that Matt Klentak was probably the MVP of that process. Just having worked in the league and then having worked in Baltimore for a number of years in that role before coming to the Angels, like his ability to navigate all of the issues that came with that signing was really, he was the only one in the office at that point that was capable of doing that and doing it quickly, which is what it required. And how do you track everyone's status, whether it's service time or options or salary? Is there uh, an old-fashioned board with magnets? Is it a smart board now? Is it all online? How does that work? It's all online. I mean, I know some teams do the magnets and they have all their players with, with service time and salaries and, and everything on magnets. I just look at my computer. You know, there's not like one giant computer with like a like a Dinesh from Silicon Valley size screen that has everything on and blinking lights and it makes noises. Like, it's, it's, you know, there's a central database that you can log into and look at the service time and salary and option status, whether the players didn't click on outright waivers before. You can look at all of that in terms of managing it for all 30 teams and sort of knowing it. You know, you, I guess you could try and memorize it if you really thought there would be some benefit to it. Generally, if I need to look at something and I don't know it off the top of my head, I just open my computer and go into the browser and look at the player and then have an answer. So much of what we do is knowing where to look or who to call as opposed to knowing it off the top of your head. Well, you mentioned budgets for different departments and how carefully all of that is tracked. And so... How often do you update that? If you're going over, how soon can you tell? Do you have to go ask for the GM's approval? Does he have to go ask for ownership's approval? How far above that can you go before you're in trouble? I think it just depends place to place with the Angels. Um, we've always been gifted with an owner who generally understands that uh, baseball comes first. And, you know, if it's going to help us win, he's all in favor of it. So there, there has never been a time where there's been like a, a dead panic. Like, we're going to be over in this area, and we're all going to get fired. It's more of explaining why we're over and giving them as much of a heads up as possible so that either our team president or our VP of finance and or our owner can be aware that this is coming. Most of the areas where you go over are not million-dollar or $5 million overages. The expenses in scouting were higher this year because we crisscrossed the country because we had a high pick and we wanted to get extra looks. So we're... Twenty or $30,000 over here. But when you start doing that across 
10 or 15 or 20 different areas, like the money can obviously add up and you don't want to be irresponsible. But I think the biggest thing for us has always been just making people aware that it's going to be an issue as soon as you're you're aware. And one thing, that, another story that caught my attention recently was uh, TJ Friedel slipping through the cracks just because it seemed like almost nobody knew he was draft eligible this year. And that sort of impressed how big the universe of information uh, that major league front offices are responsible for knowing that, you know, something like that, you know, it's a, like a second round talent going completely undrafted just because nobody knew he had redshirted. So, you know, how big is that universe of information that you've got to keep track of or that you and the, you know, the other rules guys uh, would have to keep track of? You know, that generally speaking, that would fall into sort of the, you know, if you're putting it into a bucket, that would fall into the, the, the amateur scouting. If there's a, you know, a coordinator amateur scouting department, he manages the area scouts along with the scouting director. And if there's an assistant scouting director, like you're really relying on your area scouts to turn in the players, make sure they know who's eligible, understand the makeup of all the different rosters that they're responsible for knowing whether they're high school or junior college or college rosters. Um, how often that hits either my desk or an assistant GM's desk is probably pretty rare. It's just there's, there's only so much you could know. And if you're asking people to administrate major league operations, player development, so all of the clubs and player development and amateur scouting and international scouting where you have to, you know, obviously the J2 dates for eligibility are complicated depending on the player's age and when they turn 16 and, you know, the MLB rules for managing that process. It just becomes a little much. So you try and segment those off into areas. You have an amateur coordinator, you have an international coordinator and an assistant director, and those people then rely on their area scouts and their supervisors to make sure that hopefully everybody has turned in that you would like to select. And I know you've been involved in contract negotiations, whether it's for arbitration-eligible players or pre-arb players. How does that typically break down? Again, this is something that I'm sure would vary by front office and by team. But at what point does the GM get involved or stop getting involved? You know, if it's a big free agent deal, I assume that the GM is is haggling over those terms. But at some point, does it then get passed down the line? And when you're hammering out the actual language of the contract or maybe some of the smaller terms, it falls to the assistant GM or someone in your position. How does the actual negotiation work? It just, you know, obviously on the zero to three contract, and all of this is individualized by team. When I first started with the Angels, Tony Regan, the GM, and Ken Force, the assistant GM, did all the, the players with less than three years service time, the minimum salary guys. When Jerry took over, he just said, you know what, I'm, I've got enough to do. He gave it to Matt, and then Matt, Contact, and I split it up, usually either by pitchers and position players, or if we had a relationship with the agent, and we would go through and do those negotiations. I think typically for most clubs, for any kind of notable major league free agent signing, the GM will take the lead, and then he will either rely on the advice of or even bring the assistant GM and anybody else whose area of specialty it is into those negotiations to talk about structure, what works for the club, how to, you know, how to build out dollars or incentives to make sure all club policies are followed, make sure all the rules are followed. So I would say that for most clubs, the zero to three contracts tend to fall on as GMs and directors of baseball ops. For major league free agent signings, I think the GM does most of the, the quote unquote dirty work with the agent. And then at a certain point, like you said, it gets passed off to the assistant GM to talk about guarantee language or incentives or 
you name it, that the, the agent and or the club would like in the contract. And we often think of, say, you know, stats or scouting as, as skills or knowledge that you have to have to advance in a front office. But it seems like, based on some of the names you mentioned, like Matt Klintak, this is a good way to get noticed, too, and a good way to get involved and maybe get promoted to be the rules authority, to be the guy who's kind of involved in every area because he knows the fine print. That seems like something that can help get you noticed. I think that's true, but I think that the, what you majored in in college or if you have an advanced degree or a master's degree, like those things are all helpful. I think generally attention to detail and willingness to continue to grind through it over and over again are probably the most important things. So getting a job in the league office, for instance, and working for someone like Jeff Pfeiffer in the league office, like that is very helpful. That is, that is you know, the experience that you have with one club is, is limited to the interesting or unique things that happen to that one club. If you work in a league office, you run into 30 clubs as interesting or unique or weird problems, and you, the only way to really learn all the rules is probably to experience them. If you can time that times 30, your learning curve, I would assume, would go up very quickly. And you've been with the Angels throughout this period during which almost every team has developed some sort of information storage system and maybe paid more attention to its process and refined uh, a lot of the everyday tasks. So have things gotten easier over time? You know, are the, the routine tasks much simpler now than they were in 2008? Something like arbitration prep, for instance, which is so heavily based on comparables. Is that the kind of thing that can be automated now to a greater extent, whereas before it was just a, a very intensive manual labor type task? Yeah, definitely the research can be automated more than it used to be. Uh, that is the biggest grind in terms of the time suck is, is the research. And, you know, I think you, you always, the more time you can put into it and the more during the year you can prepare in advance, the easier to some extent your negotiations can go come January when exchange day is upon you. So that helps. But in terms of automation helping you get through the actual exchange week negotiations probably doesn't help that much because it's just a matter of getting on the phone with the agent and sort of finding out where his hotspots are and his willingness to move and them for you. And there's really no way to replace the deadline on the schedule because I think most people react to deadlines. So <laughs> you, you can automate uh, uh, things all you want, but at a certain point, they're just not going to move until you get to January 15th or 17th and you vice versa with them. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody typically does deals two weeks in advance. There's rarely ever like an ARP deal announced like the week before Christmas because there's just no urgency to do so at that point. Uh -huh. So baseball people procrastinate is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, believe me, I think all baseball people would much prefer to have the tape moved up so that we can enjoy our late January and early February. But the deadlines are what they are, and we are forced to wait just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly for me, maybe you've been with the Angels through a CBA change. We have another CBA update coming so how does that change all of this? If a CBA changes, do you, you know, assign everyone to the front office to read the thing 10 times and make sure that you know all the ins and outs? Is it summarized very plainly by the league or, or some other entity? How has the job changed as the CBA has changed? You know, that's interesting. Jonathan Strangio, our assistant GM, and I were talking about this, and it's probably like the nerdiest baseball conversation that you can have. We're both <laughs> excited to to see what is in the new CBA because it presents new interesting options and, you know, it will uh, undoubtedly, even if there are small changes, change some small things about our process or about the way we have to manage 
either rosters or draft dollars or international dollars, there will be some changes. There always are. So we're sort of excited to dig in um, once hopefully they get done with this soon so we can see what what we have to learn and what is new. Typically the league, or at least the last couple of CBAs, will send out a summary of the changes, like a small packet. In addition to the new rule books, you don't have to comb the rule book and find the new areas just through memory. They'll send out a summary to all the clubs in the union. Obviously, we'll disperse the same. So they do make it easy for you. And I just want to follow up on Ben's question before that. Is there a busy time of the year for you versus sort of a downtime? Are you just bouncing from one deadline and one set of transactions to the next? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like it's the latter. We're bouncing from one set of problems or one set of things to manage to another. You know, if it's June, we're focused on the amateur draft. If it's January, December and January, we're focused on arbitration. February is zero to three contracts for your players who are under three years of service. Um, it just depends the time of the year. You know, in someone like Jonathan's role um, as the assistant GM right now, I think we've made some ungodly number of transactions this year. So I feel like the number of days where he's just, we've had a normal nine inning game and he's just gone home and come in sort of at a regular time the next day have been very few because we've made so many transactions this year. We've had so many injuries. We've had so many designations. So, it, you know, year to year, it changes. But generally speaking, you kind of know when your hotspots are and when your seasons are. You know, from the 10th of July through the deadline, you're going to be focused on the trade deadline. Now, if, it's, if you're focused on personnel, you're going to be focused on trade candidates and finding the interesting pieces from the other club. If you're focused administratively, you're going to be focused on how does this affect payroll day to day, you know, making sure that whatever move you're trying to do, you can do based on roster numbers or based on the status of the players that you're trading, if there are any player to be named um, or cash transaction involved or 10 and five rates that need to be waived or no trades that you're, you're providing ample time to do those things. Like it just, every season is different. So in that respect, you know, there's no real downtime. It's just different time. And I thought of one more. So out here on the internet, we're, we're constantly saying, you know, well, teams will pay, $8 million for a win if it's on the free agent market or something. So it's a much better deal if they were just to, say, hire a front office person who could make them one win better or hire some new technology or invest in the stat side or hire some more scouts or whatever it is, an expenditure that is comparatively much smaller and at least potentially could produce a bigger effect. But from talking to people in the game, it seems like it can often be harder to make that small expenditure than it is to, say, pick up a reliever or something who's making millions of dollars. It's just two separate budgets almost. There's the player payroll and then there's the administrative payroll, which is much smaller, even though it seems like there are areas where you could get more bang for your buck there. So is that typically the case that a team will have a harder time kind of just pushing through, you know, headcount in the front office or something than spending millions of dollars on the on the payroll, which might not generate as efficient a return? You know, I th I've only ever worked in one place, and even though it's been three different regimes, so to speak, I would guess that is probably true in most places. Uh -huh. If for no other reason than when you're talking about signing Joe Reliever, you get to see Joe Reliever on the field and the results, good or bad, right away, yeah. whereas everything else is more of an abstract case that, Oh, if we hire, like I know Lewis Polis, who works with Phillies now, wrote a paper on sort of investing in the front office and how that's the undervalued commodity. Right. Um, and that's great and would love to see that happen. But it, it's harder to quantify. It's harder to make people see that adding the eighth person in the office over the seventh gives us, you know, X number of wins or X percentage of a chance to uh, win more games. Um, so I think those are 
it's just harder to see with your own eyes if you're the team president or if you're the owner. Um, whereas you have 25 spots, you got to fill 25 spots on a major league roster. X reliever was good last year. Let's go get that guy. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a wild oversimplification, but you know, generally speaking, it's just it's a, you, you know what your major league payroll is going to be, and you have to fill 25 spots. Yeah, and I guess that drives home how important ownership can be or, or high level management can be. We we often just attribute everything to the GM or the president of baseball operations, but. Often it's something that goes even higher than that. And if you have an owner who's amenable to those things and can be persuaded, then maybe you have a lot more options with what you do with your money. I think most are at this point, too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, the, I, you know, I've, I'm clearly just off the top of my head. I think almost all front offices are substantially larger than they yes, were definitely. Eight, 10 years ago. More infrastructure is being invested in. We have more coaches at all the levels. We have more analytics departments across the league. We have more baseball operations assistants. Like, I don't think any team is smaller than they were 10 years ago in any department. Yeah. All right. So this was great. Thank you for coming on. We wish you continued luck in not pressing the wrong button and releasing Mike Trout. So thanks for uh, coming on and telling us about all this stuff. If, if I do, it'll be the last you ever hear of me. <laughs> thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. So that is it for this episode. Thanks to Ben and Justin. Good talking to you, Michael. And thanks to our listeners. Tuesdays and Fridays are going to be our regular spots for the rest of the season. So we will be back with a new episode of the Ringer MLB Show on Friday. 